morning. My name is Kelsey. I am one of the ministers on staff here, if I haven't met you. We've got two passages today for our Bible reading, and the first one comes from Psalm, the Psalms. It is Psalm 23 on page 548, and there are Bibles in the seats in front of you. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And our second reading is from Romans 8 on page 1133, starting in verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those to whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Morning, everyone. I hope you're enjoying the uh, lovely hot weather at night. I can't recall it being this bad, but uh, anyway, you're here, so that's good. And we've got a nice big fan. And if you want that up higher, maybe turn it up a little bit more. It is a warm day. Let me pray, and we're going to start. Father, we do thank you we can be here. And Lord, we rejoice that we are alive. And not just alive, we know you. And Father, minister to our hearts and to our minds on this particular topic of worry. And may we find great confidence and assurance in knowing you and contentment. In Jesus' name, Amen. We're in the middle of a series called Why Worry? And worry is, I think, something that we all experience. To worry worry is to breathe at one level. Now, if you want to know one of my anxieties, um, it is that we get broken into. And I've got an irrational fear of getting broken into. And it's because um, in my past life, I think we got broken into six times in Wollongong, uh, including having a sleep on my, uh, like a nana nap, Phil playing in the next room, and a man coming in the house. 
uh, while Kath was away. We got uh, our car done a four or five times when we lived in Newtown, including one night when I remember waking up and I heard a guy breaking into the car. You could literally hear the guy scratching at the door lock trying to break it. It was outside the window like three metres away and I thought, oh, what poor person's having his car broken into now? One thirty. I thought, where did I park my car? I went, that's mine! <laughs> Uh, and today, I will go and check doors are locked three times. Ask my family, they know. I've driven back many times just to check the house has been locked up. And it's irrational at one level, but uh, it's a real issue that I've, uh, in a sense, developed because I've just been broken into so many times in my life. Let me say, it's never happened in Manly. Um, and a friend of ours who is a high-ranking police officer, uh, when Kath rang and was worried about all the news reports, they had this police column in the Manly Daily, uh, and she goes, I've moved to Crime Central. And he said to us, no, you've just moved away from Crime Central in Wollongong. And uh, anyway, that's my issue uh, that I've got to deal with. And knowing God is in charge is very important. You see, it's part of life. We worry about things. And we feel stressed about what's happening around us. Uh, Many of us will know the experience of not sleeping well and waking up tired and not because of the humidity. Um, We just are not well. Uh, We're stressed about life. We worry. We can experience irrational fears, I've mentioned mine, and we can struggle to function through the day. Our muscles can be tense and sore, and not because we've had a big workout at the gym. Uh, We can have chronic digestive problems because of worry, and not because of cheap, spicy Thai food that we ate last night with too much chilli. We can experience social worries and feel incredibly self-conscious. I don't know if you know that reality, wondering what are you going to wear, how will you be received, and you go out and you think, oh dear. And we can obsess over mistakes we make, They might be ones at work, they might be socially, and we can judge ourselves harshly, we can judge others harshly because we just want life to be perfect. And we grapple with these worries in life, they're very real for people. For most of us, we'll have things that we worry about. We can even experience severe panic attacks where the heartbeat races and life just seems very difficult. There's another worry that I've discovered in the last couple of years, and it's called FOMO. Now, I don't know if you've... um, We're looking at Psalm 23, but do you know what FOMO stands for? Uh, Those who are younger tend to know this acronym. It stands for the fear of missing out. And it's a real worry. And if you look up Wikipedia, it will define FOMO this way. It's the fear of missing out, and it refers to the apprehension that one is not in the know or one is out of touch with some social events, experiences or interactions, and people who grapple with FOMO might not exactly know what they're missing out on, but can still hold a fear that others are having a much better time and having a much more rewarding experience on the spur of the moment. And I find it fascinating that we've got this word FOMO. And it's very real. And I think it's built on this primal human desire to have more. You see, by nature, we are discontented people. It's one of the ways, if I can say, sin affects the human psyche. We just feel we need more. We're missing out. We want more. And whether it is finances, whether it is in terms of acquisitions to do with the things of life that we want to have around us, I mean, one of the bizarre things is my car is five years old and I think, do I need a new one? Well, actually, no, I don't need a new one. The car is fine. And that's the effect of the culture we're in. It it keeps saying you need something better, newer, brighter, shinier, sharper, whatever. Now, social media drives this fear in terms of FOMO in many ways, particularly as people will sometimes instantly see what they're missing out on. 
It's why it's actually quite unhelpful to go on Facebook. Is because you can sometimes go on and you think, oh, I didn't get invited to that. Now, have you ever experienced that? Now, if you want a classic example, I wonder if there were people who stayed home on New Year's Eve and watched what other people were posting. And you think, oh, look what they They didn't invite me. <laughs> now, this is a very real thing. And you see, to be discontented is a deep reality that feeds so much of our worrying. We haven't bought any property. We've missed out in the property boom. It's a very deep reality for some. Well, we bought an apartment, but we, no way can we afford a house. We missed out on the bull run on the stock market a few years back and we feel ripped off. I'm not married and I fear I've missed out and I'm discontented. I am married and I wish I wasn't and I'm discontented. <laughs> we haven't been able to have kids. We feel empty. We do have kids. They drive us crazy. I'm out of a job, I don't know what to do and I feel so discontented. I'm actually stuck in this job and I don't know what to do and I feel so discontented. It doesn't matter what circumstance you're in, everyone will feel some sense of discontent about their life they have. And let me just say, those issues are very real. I don't want to make light of them. And to people who are discontented and worrying, this psalm speaks directly to us. It's Psalm 23. Let's have a look at the first verse. It is profound. Now, for those who've been reading the Bibles for many years, as I did, I prepared using the 1984 version of the NIV and realised last night I needed to update it to 2011. And I've got the reading version that's in front of you. But for those who grew up, the words were, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. The modern version is, I lack nothing. That's a very powerful phrase, this 2011 version of the NIV Bibles you've got in front of you. I lack nothing. And it's worth saying this phrase is used about three times in the Old Testament, once here in the Psalms, twice to reflect on Israel, that's all, in an unqualified way. You see, David's not saying, no, I don't lack any clothing, Uh, I don't lack food, I don't lack friends. He just says, actually, I lack nothing. I am blessed by God. Now, Psalm 23 is probably the most famous section of the Bible. It's worth saying that. And so we're on, if I can say, holy territory in looking at this most loved piece of Scripture. It probably is the most read verses of Scripture. If someone is dying, it is often read to them in their last hours. I know I have. And there's an incredible privilege to take this incredibly precious piece of God's word and read it because of the power and the confidence and the assurance that is here for the believer. But it's worth saying it's not just a psalm for the dying, it's also a psalm for the living because it actually describes the journey of life that all of us will go on as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and it speaks of the provision of God for us. And the overarching I can say flavor and smell of this is assurance it just reeks of divine confidence and assurance that we have in God and it was written by King David it's worth saying we actually don't know when it was written in his lifetime and King David had many ups and downs and I suspect this is written towards the end of his life but that's helpful to know you see whether you're 17 and worried about your HSC marks and what university course you do whether you're 25 And should you marry the guy you're with, whether you're 30 and you're single and worried about will you actually get married, whether you're 35 and you're divorced and wondering will you ever find happiness, whether you're 40 
and you're worried about what will be the outcome of your parents' cancer news, whether you're 45 and you're stuck in a dead-end job and you think, am I ever going to escape the mundane reality of life, whether you're 50 and you've just been made redundant and you wonder what is going to happen to me, whether you're 55 and your wife has just left you and you think, what on earth has happened, whether you're 60 and your spouse is alcoholic and you've thought, good grief, I'm just sick of this, whether you're 70 and you realise you've wasted your life, whether you're 80 and you're now confronted by the reality of death, or whether you're Wal Edwards and you're 100. And that's what Wal is, and he was up serving communion this morning. This psalm still speaks to you. It's incredible. Because it describes the reality of life. And whatever your story or issue that you have to confront, and the cause you have to worry, and the discontentment you might feel... These words are powerful. The Lord is my shepherd. I am not in want. I lack nothing. And I want you to know it's a very personal psalm. Uh, David is not speaking, if I can say corporately, on behalf of the people of God, we. This is David the believer, who under God had to walk the journey of life. And he says, I, I lack nothing. And it's worth saying this morning, we know that this psalm is fulfilled for believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we sit here this morning, I want us to be reflecting through the psalm on how this is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. He is the one who said, actually, I am the good shepherd. And so when you wonder who is the Lord, who is the shepherd, Jesus says, actually, that's me. I am the good shepherd and I lay down my life for the sheep. And this psalm is about us and our relationship with the Lord Jesus who watches over us and guides us in our life. And it's worth saying, if you're someone new here this morning or a seeker and you're not sure where you are in terms of God, his son, the Lord Jesus, is the one we're speaking about and he would want you to come to know him personally. And to start following him and be part of his family because of what he's done to die for you and rise again. If you need more information about that, we would love to talk to you afterwards. Please let us know on the Connect cards about how you can put your trust in the Lord Jesus and start following him. But the challenge of the passage for us who know the Lord Jesus is that it says to us, do you actually believe God is enough? You see, you have this incredibly rich personal testimony before us And it really challenges us at a personal level, do we believe God is enough for us? Can we say these words with King David? I lack nothing. And I want you to hear the words of the Lord Jesus because in a world that is so discontented and keeps thinking, I need more, Jesus, who is the good shepherd, In that passage said, I've laid down my life for the sheep. Do you know what he also said? I've come that you might have life and have it in a scungy way. Now, that's not what he said, is it? I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. In other words, we can actually know the experience of walking with God and find contentment with him. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Now, it's worth reflecting just briefly on shepherds because I think in the Australian context what comes to mind is the picture on the screen behind us hundreds and hundreds of sheep vast expanses of green grass 
farmers on motorbikes, a pack of yapping blue kelpie cattle dogs nipping at their heels. The average farm sheep size is about 2,500 in Australia from the research I did. And what that says is, you know, if you lose one or two sheep, well, there's some collateral damage in farming that you just kind of write off on the books. Very different to the Middle Eastern scene of farming, where a shepherd had his own flock. They didn't ride motorbikes and have blue kelpies nipping at the heels. And they would know each sheep by name. Now, the largest flock probably was like in the story of the lost sheep, a hundred that Jesus describes, more typically probably 30 or 40. And the sheep knew their shepherd. It was an incredibly personal relationship. That's what we're talking about. God caring for us individually. And just stop and think about that picture that's before you of a shepherd caring individually and knowing each sheep by name. That's what is being put before us in this psalm. And in a world where there are billions of people, you go, is this possible? That the God who made the creation knows me, I, individually? Well, yes. He knows us personally and individually. And David says this, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along, guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Now, it is worth saying this, and it's not a compliment to be called a sheep. You do realise this. Sheep are... They're dumb. Now, I'm not calling you dumb... The Word of God is, okay? (laughs) I'm part of the sheep, okay? They are some of the most dumb animals out there. And we're like them. But having said that, the thing with sheep in the Middle East is this, they would bind themselves to their shepherd because they knew that the shepherd would look after them. And so they would follow the shepherd as he led them into green pastures. Now, just have a look at that picture again. You see, it's not like Australia. We've got vast expanses of green grass. You've got a fence you put around and just let them roam. No, the shepherd would take them from, you know, one area of green grass and then he would travel through the rocky ravine and find another and he would know the lay of the land. And he would take them on a journey so that they would find green pasture. They would find quiet waters and it would be a journey that would be through difficult ravine where there would not be food, where there would not be quiet waters, but he would leave them there. And you see, what that teaches us is this is the very nature of the Christian life. We have a God who guides us personally into green pastures, but it's not like green pastures are around us every day of the week or quiet waters every day of the week, there are turbulent times, there are barren times, there are dark times, which this psalm reflects on. But he refreshes my soul and he guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. And the word right paths there is the word for righteousness. And you see, he's using the imagery of the shepherd and the sheep to say, actually, this is the reality of what it means to be a follower of the living God. And it's the same for us as followers of the Lord Jesus. God guides us into the right path of life. The Lord Jesus does. And I want you to hear the words of the Lord Jesus when he speaks about paths. Do you remember? In the Sermon on the Mount, there are two paths. There's a broad one. Many people are on it. 
And what does it lead to? Destruction. And he said, my people are on the narrow path. It is winding. But it leads to life. And how does God guide us? How does the Lord Jesus speak to us? Because the Lord Jesus in that chapter 10, the Good Shepherd, we could have had three readings this morning, said, I lay down my life for my sheep and my sheep know my voice. And you see, that's the experience of being a follower of the Lord Jesus. We know Jesus speaking to us and it's through his word. And you see, he guides us along the narrow path through his word and it's a path that walks in holiness and righteousness. It's the path that calls for generosity and not for greed. It's the path of sobriety, not drunkenness. It's the path of sexual abstinence, not sexual activity for single people. It's the path of marital faithfulness and love and devotion for those who are married. It's the path of service and sacrifice, not indulgence and wastefulness. It's the narrow path of righteousness that leads to life. You see, God's guidance is about our holiness as we read his word, as we hear his voice to us. Psalm 23 goes on to say this, Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I'll fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And you see, that was the reality for the sheep. They would go through dark times as they were led to green pastures. And it absolutely was the experience of life under God for King David. And I suspect this is written at the end of his life when he has traversed many difficult paths. And you think about what he went through. He faced Goliath as a young boy. He faced armies as a conquering soldier. He faced rejection by Saul and persecution by him. He had to flee for his life and was on the run for many years in the wilderness he ended up at one period of life having to live outside the land of Israel, literally as like an asylum seeker. He was someone who knew both the good times and the very difficult times. And his statement is, even though I walked through the darkest valley, and he'd been through many dark valleys, he said, I will fear no evil for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, the rod and the staff, the staff was the shepherd's crook that would guide the sheep and would help him walk along. The rod was tucked into his belt and it was like a weapon now I've actually got a rod when I go fishing and it's this little thing that we call the pacifier now I thought it's a bit gruesome to bring it along this morning but you know if I get a big fish in the boat and I need to kill it um, you pacify it anyway you don't need any more information you all eat fish we want to kill them quickly not slowly but it's a weapon that I carry with me now the shepherd was no different he had both a guiding piece of wood and a weapon for a piece of wood. So that if wild animals come, he might spill their blood rather than the blood of the lambs be spilt. What happens though with the great shepherd of the sheep, the Lord Jesus Christ? The piece of timber that he carried was on his back. He didn't wield it to shed others' blood but was nailed to it and shed his own blood. And his enemies, he actually died for. And the protection he provides for his sheep is by his death. 
and his blood shed. So that by his blood shed, we don't have to face the shedding and destruction of our own lives under God and face his judgment. He's faced it for us. He walked through the darkest of valleys on that cross, the Lord Jesus Christ, fearing no evil, nailed to the rod and the staff on our behalf. And that's why the Apostle Paul says in the second reading we had today, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And this is the incredible thing. The shepherd has given his life for us. He has held nothing back. God is for us. He is with us. And we know that because of the cross. And we know that because of the resurrection. And friends, they are our comfort. Do you know the comfort of the assurance of your sins forgiven and of death defeated? Because of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, friends, they are our comfort. Verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Now the word picture shifts here from shepherd to banquet host. But think with me about these words because they're really quite profound. He says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. So God is a host who blesses us, you anoint my head with oil. Oil was like, if I can say, the uh, deodorant of the first century. Made you smell nice. Cup overflowing is this rich metaphor of abundance and blessing and banqueting. And the shepherd, God, is now the host who prepares a table of abundance. But it's before David's enemies. Now, commentators talk about are the enemies literally in front of him like he's got a conquered king who's got to sit and watch him eat the meal as the conquering king or is it that David's in his castle and the armies are approaching and Joab's saying come on David we've got to go to war and he's saying no no I'm still having my lamb shanks (laughs) well come on finish them well we've then got the baklava No hurry, but they're coming. God's in charge. God will win. And you see, these words are, they're a statement of confidence that David knew the victory would be his, not because of his ability, but because God would grant it. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Now, I don't know if you realize this, but the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus, did exactly this. He actually prepared a banquet, a table, before his enemies. It was the last night before he died. And we call it the Last Supper. And he gathered those who were closest to him, his 12 disciples, for a meal. And present on that night were the 12, including Judas, whom he actually names that night as the one who will betray him, the one who dips his bread in the cup. And also present that night was his other enemy, Satan. Because Luke's gospel tells us that Satan had entered Judas's heart to betray him. 
And Jesus eats this last supper, literally in the presence of his enemies. The human betrayer, Judas, and his spiritual enemy, the devil, are there in the room. And Jesus banquets in front of them with his followers, but confident knowing that they will be defeated. The next day, even though humanly he's betrayed by Judas, his people, the religious people of Israel, send him to Pilate to be crucified and the Romans do the work for them. And Satan is there thinking that he is one. No, Jesus knew that on the cross he would conquer. And he would conquer sin, he would conquer death, and he would conquer the devil himself. And as a result of that, our cup overflows. Because the blessing of Jesus' life, death and resurrection flows to us as we experience his spirit in our life. These words are profound because, you see, we find our assurance and our confidence and our contentment in knowing that Jesus has conquered for us. David finishes the psalm this way, Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now it's worth saying there's a Hebrew word, which is what the Old Testament is written in, which was the language of Israel, for follow there. It's actually a stronger word in the original language. It means pursue. It's kind of its primary meaning. And I want you to read it with that in mind. Surely goodness and love will pursue me all the days of my life. Now, who's pursuing who? It's actually the love of God pursuing David. Now, that's an incredible image to think about. You see, this is the reality of our relationship we have with God. We don't find him. He pursues us. We walk away from him and he finds us. And there's this incredible strength to his love that does not give up and he pursues us all the way to the cross where Jesus dies for his enemies father forgive them I don't know what they don't know what they're doing surely goodness and love will pursue me all the days of my life it is profound Peter you see in Christ we are secure and we have contentment in him knowing that there is actually a heavenly banquet prepared for us that we're invited to And this great third affirmation, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And I want to contrast those words with two experiences of people dying. Because they're incredibly powerful words of assurance and confidence that the Christian has. That we can say with David, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. A minister I know, his name is Chris, tells the story of being called to visit a dying man in his last week. The man was a doctor and he was well known as an atheist. When the time of great sickness hit and his death was imminent, he was so fearful that he would not let his wife leave the room in case he died. It's a tragic story. Even though He thought there's nothing out there. He just was so terrified by the thought of what will actually happen. 
And I contrast this with a beautiful story that Bruce Baird told me of his grandfather. And Bruce, uh, we've been praying for because he's had open heart surgery just for Christmas. Good to see you up there, Bruce. Back in church. And I read Bruce Psalm 23, this psalm, before he went to have his open heart surgery operation. Now, these are the words that are slightly unnerving. The surgeon said 90% of people come through. Now, I'm maths background, so 10% don't. Bruce knew the reality. And I sat and I read Psalm 23. And we got to the end and he told me this story that his grandfather, George Hogg, when dying, was brought from upstairs down to the living room. And Bruce's father read this psalm to him. And he got to the end. And Bruce's father, it's actually his, uh, his father, father's um, father-in-law, George. And he read the words, And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And Bruce's grandfather raised his fist and said, Yes, forever! And then died. And I think, what a way to go. And you see, what he was testifying to was the confidence that he had in Christ. Forever. And off to eternity and into the presence of the Lord Jesus, George Hogg went. Friends, this is an incredibly powerful psalm. Because it speaks of this reality. In this world of FOMO, where people fear they miss out, in this world of worry, that God is enough. And it's a personal testimony about that reality. And I want to finish by getting you to reflect on this. You see, he talks about God, the Lord is my shepherd. He talks about the fact that he is guided to green pastures and quiet waters. He talks about the fact that, yes, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But three times he makes an affirmation and turns talking about God to talking to God. God, I will lack nothing. God, I will fear no evil. God, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And they are the words of someone who knows God is enough. You see, what does it mean to know God? It means you believe in him even when you don't want to. You trust in him even when you feel he's let you down. When you fear you're missing out, you say, actually, God, you are enough. With you, I lack nothing. When troubled times come, you say, I will fear no evil. And when you wonder what will happen in life, you say, actually, I know I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Whatever the outcome of life that we go through, you know he will be with you. Your cup will overflow because he is enough. I want to stop and get us to pray. And last week, we had a lovely time praying as a congregation. And we're going to do that this morning. And I just want us to, in very short sentences, I want to make sure we've all got opportunity. And as I said when I preached on um, prayer once, you don't have to preach a long prayer. You actually just need to say short prayers. 
particularly when we're together. And let's just affirm our own faith to God and thank him for the way he gives us protection, provision, so that we know he is enough and we can rest secure and content in knowing him. I'm going to start and then just put your hand up and Emily and Nathan will come around with a microphone if you'd like to pray a short prayer of response to God's wonderful care of us. Father, I just thank you that you pursue me and you've never let me go. And I thank you for that. Amen.